this is David Beeson and this is episode 37 of the History of England entitled Who'll Take the Decisions? Specifically, that's deciding who should sit on the throne and which wars England should join since, as so often in this period, the country was about to lurch into another one. One of the curious aspects of war at the time, which made it so much more civilised than these days, was that it was a strictly fair-weather sport. The campaigning season was from spring to autumn. So William III spent that time each year on the continent, wreaking all the damage he could on the French, rather like certain English tourists today, though at least the modern ones don't generally have field artillery to help them. While he was away fighting Holland's wars, his wife Queen Mary II got her only real chance to do any queening, though she did always make sure she had William's okay to anything she decided, and as soon as he got back from the fighting, she would hand authority right back to him. Sadly, though, she caught smallpox, this being a time before vaccines, or come to that, anti-vaxxers, and died of it. William was distraught. He failed to marry again, or, as far as anyone could see, to take any mistresses. Since he did have young male friends whom he ennobled, tongues soon began to wag with suggestions that he might be gay. That was viewed as just as bad as being Catholic. He started to lose popularity. The Jacobites even had a go at assassinating him, but, as so often with anything to do with the Stuarts and their supporters, they screwed up. Even more important than his waning popularity was the fact that he was childless. He and Mary had had no kids, and since he seemed disinclined to remarry, it was unlikely that he'd produce any now. There was, however, an heir. That was Mary's sister Anne, the last remaining Protestant child of James II. She was married to a Danish prince, and they seemed to have no objection to getting her pregnant, though that only turned into a repeated tragedy for her. Seventeen pregnancies, which led to only five live births, and only one of those children made it even past infancy, dying at eleven. Of course, James II had other kids, but they were Catholics. There were also several more lines of descent from his father, Charles I, but all of those were Catholic too. Like someone who's bitten into one bad apple and decided never to taste the fruit again, most of England reckoned that the lesson to learn from the disaster of James II's reign was never to have another Catholic monarch. All the potential heirs on those Catholic lines were, therefore, simply non-starters. In the end, they had to reach two generations back to find a line that would give them a Protestant heir to the throne. There was a granddaughter of James I's around. She was Sophia, wife of the ruler of the German state of Hanover. His title was Elector, as he was one of the grandees who helped elect the Holy Roman Emperor. Sophia was descended from people we've already come across. James I's daughter Elizabeth, Charles I's sister, the one who married the ruler of the Palatinate in Germany, another elector, which led to James being dragged into the Thirty Years' War, when his son-in-law's lands were occupied by the Spanish. Wow, it seems ages, doesn't it, since Spain had been powerful enough to occupy German territory? You may also remember Prince Rupert, Charles I's nephew and a dashing, if not always wholly effective, cavalry commander in the Civil Wars. 
Well, he was Sophia's brother. Small world, isn't it? So, Sophia, as a Protestant, was the only heir to the English or Scottish throne, if neither William or Anne produced one, who'd meet the requirements of the Bill of Rights that excluded Catholics. But, as I've no doubt you'd remind me if you could, the Bill of Rights had no legal status. It hadn't been signed or passed by anyone. It wasn't binding. William was nearing 50 at the end of the 17th century, when life expectancy was little over 40. Even Anne was in her mid-30s, and unless Sophia was added to the succession, she was the only recognised and acceptable heir to William. It seemed a little risky to have only one person in line for the throne. Today there are about 20, counting only descendants of Elizabeth II, and though it mattered less than under the Stuarts back then, it mattered a lot more than it does now. Politicians across the party divide decided that it was time to get something down in law. It took a while, a couple of years from the first drafting to enactment in 1701, but the result was the Act of Settlement, which we've already met. We talked before about the way the Act prohibited Catholics mounting the throne. That offered some retrospective legitimacy to William and Mary over James II's Catholic descendants. But it also specifically named Sophia of Hanover, next in line after Anne, followed by her children. It looked as though the Dutchman William III was unlikely to be the last foreigner on the English throne, given that it would almost inevitably go to a German from Hanover after Anne. The Act of Settlement therefore included some measures about foreigners, some of which reflected the rather xenophobic sentiments the English liked to indulge in at various moments, not usually their best moments. In the event that a foreigner took the throne, it would need parliamentary consent for England to join any war waged on behalf of the monarch's foreign possessions. After all, England had been drawn into the Nine Years' War in support of William III's native country, Holland, and by the time the Act of Settlement was passed, it was fighting another. More about that in the next episode. The country was broadly in favour of taking part in both wars, but it was good to have it clearly specified in law that parliamentary consent would always be necessary if similar circumstances arose again. Far more xenophobic were provisions that excluded foreigners, or actually the simply foreign-born, from sitting in Parliament. That meant that even naturalised citizens were excluded. That provision has since been repealed. The Act also banned anyone with a job paid for by the monarch from sitting in Parliament. The idea was to prevent the Crown exercising too much influence by arranging the election of MPs from its own payroll. Funnily enough, since by convention even today members of Parliament are not allowed to resign by actually resigning, this is the way that they resign without resigning. They accept one of two ludicrously ancient offices under the Crown, steward of the Chiltern Hundreds or of the Manor of Northstead, neither of which involves any actual duties, in effect excluding themselves from being MPs. With its provisions about requiring parliamentary consent for war on behalf of a monarch's foreign holdings, and in limiting the Crown's patronage among MPs, the Act therefore further underlined the independence of Parliament, just as it confirmed, again, that it was law that decided the succession, not the will of God. The Act passed while William III was still on the throne. The next year, however, when he was out for a morning ride, his horse, ironically one he'd confiscated from an executed Jacobite, stumbled over a molehill and William was thrown. 
He broke his collarbone and, in the days before antibiotics, died soon after of infection of the injury. Jacobites took to toasting the little gentleman in the black velvet waistcoat, meaning the mole. It was time for Anne, Mary's sister, to have a go. What came to be known as the War of Spanish Succession, deciding who should sit on the throne of Spain, had now broken out. It would be hers to wage, rather than William's. In fact, in North America, it's known to this day as Queen Anne's War. But it wasn't really hers. The monarch's role was declining, and England was entering the time of parties. Not the fun ones. Tories and Whigs were by now defining their differences in relation to the 1688 Glorious Revolution. In rough terms, the Tories were the party of the king and the country interest, the great landowners who paid the bulk of taxes, while the Whigs were the party of parliamentary authority over the king, with their main support in the cities and business circles. Business was becoming increasingly important, as Britain aggressively developed its international trade, and with a powerful and growing stock market in London, its expertise and prosperity in the financial sector. Party distinctions weren't entirely clear-cut. For instance, country Whigs were also closely associated with the landholders, and they might well vote with the Tories. And individuals moved more easily between the parties then than now, driven by political developments or the main chance for their own careers. You may remember that mainstream Whigs had emerged as the opposition to royal power under James II. Curiously, however, their enthusiasm for parliamentary opposition diminished considerably when they came to take power themselves. In the past, it was the monarch who made war and the Whigs who opposed his excessive powers. Now that it was the government acting in the monarch's name, Whig ministers found themselves far more supportive of royal authority. Well, they were exercising it. Whigs liked to promote themselves as true conservatives. The Glorious Revolution, far from being a radical change, had been a restoration of what they claimed, with some wishful thinking, to have been England's ancient constitution. James had to go only because the king ruled through an implicit contract with his subjects, and by undermining Protestant dominance and the partnership of king with parliament, he'd broken it. As for the Tories, they claimed their support of the Glorious Revolution didn't mean they'd abandoned their belief in the supreme authority of kings. It was just that, by clearing off abroad, James had abdicated, Sir William and Mary had filled a vacant throne but there was no call to keep eroding the power of the monarch. The parties loathed each other. Losing an election was dangerous, since losing office meant losing the power of patronage, and therefore losing the hangers-on who backed you for it. That could lead to impeachment, bankruptcy, or even prison. That was because at the time it wasn't enough to beat an opponent, you needed to annihilate him. You may feel that a few politicians think the same way today. Losing elections wasn't uncommon either. It was hardly a democratic system, with an electorate that was large for the time, but still only represented 15% of adult males. However, many of the voters were highly independent and capable of changing their minds from one election to the next. You had to do some persuasive campaigning, with maybe a fair bit of palm greasing, and perhaps throat wetting, to ensure re-election and avoid catastrophe. Now the parties had to decide on war, which neither was keen on at first. The Spanish succession? Deciding who'd sit on that crumbling throne? 
Who cared? But with its growing commercial wealth, England's priorities were already being increasingly set by the needs of business. The historian Anne Somerset quotes a foreign diplomat in London saying that It appears there is indifference here as to which family the King of Spain comes from, provided that English commerce does not suffer. Long before Napoleon said it, England was already a nation of shopkeepers, and commerce mattered as it does in most wars. Spain was still trying to protect its monopoly over trade with Latin America. The thinking back then was that, far from growing for everyone with international trade, the pie of commercial benefit was a fixed size. So if anyone got any more of it, say France at the cost of England, England at the cost of France, or either at the cost of Spain, then the others lost out. Trade wars were already underway. England kept increasing its tariffs on foreign goods. France banned a number of English imports, including cloth. The economic atmosphere was increasingly hostile. Business was suffering as a result of the intolerable behaviour of those damn Frenchmen just across the channel. Perhaps it didn't really matter to Englishmen who sat on the Spanish throne, but it mattered very much if the French were causing their trade to suffer. Something had to be done. As a result, the country was dragged inevitably into the war of Spanish succession. Still, Whigs and Tories couldn't agree on the conduct of the war. The Tories wanted to keep the tax burden down and the business opportunities up, so they felt war should be primarily naval, preying on French and Spanish shipping. Remember how popular and profitable that game had been in England? The Whigs, though, wanted a land campaign too, as the only way to defeat France decisively. Its very business strength meant that England alone, in the grand alliance it had joined with Holland and Austria for the previous war, was wealthy enough to finance that effort. The Whigs would get their way, and Great Britain would fight on land as well as at sea. In our next episode, we'll talk about how that war went. And in the episode after that, we'll be looking at another unexpected consequence of the Act of Settlement, which is just how the very Great Britain that fought that war came into existence. Lots to look forward to. Thanks for listening. <laughs>